listening to episode 203 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we continue our analysis of season one of Joss Whedon's Dollhouse, starring Eliza Dushku and Fran Kranz. And uh, we got some listener email that uh, I've been pronouncing another name incorrectly. The apparently now correct uh, way to pronounce her name. Yes. So I'm going to trust Dan on that one. We'll get to his... uh, Letter in a little bit, but uh, how you doing? Yeah. How's the uh, foot making out? Uh, I think it's getting better. You know, still can't put any weight on it, but still maybe. wheeling yourself around on your little vehicle. Mm-hmm. My little my little knee scooter. Yep. <laughs> yeah. All right. So still no driving. No driving. Yeah. No driving okay. for, for a while. Not till I get the boot off. I'm sorry. How long is that going to take? That I do not know. Oh, okay. I don't know. So it's like six weeks now I'm weight bearing. So I think I got like three more weeks of that. So I'm just hoping that they'll have the boot off by the time school starts again. That's kind of like, my, wow, that's my, my hope. Oh, so yeah, we'll that's see. a drag. Yes. I feel for you. Cause I've been in a boot a number of occasions as I'm sure you probably have as well. No, it's my first time. Really? Yeah. Well, I got a whole collection in the basement. <laughs> I, I got, wish I was kidding. Cute. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, it's my first time to boot. I did break my foot when I was a sophomore in high school, but you know, we had the old-fashioned cast back then. So, All right, well, we got a lot to talk about tonight. So yeah, we before do. we enter our sleep chambers for the evening, Wayne and I <laughs> want to remind you, love to hear from you. Emails at sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com. You can check out the website and leave a voicemail using the leave voicemail tab. You can record your own audio clip, send us the MP3 as an attachment, or send us a tweet at Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, and we'd encourage you to consider joining the Facebook group, join the discussions there, which apparently sometimes have something to do with sci-fi and sometimes have something to do with toilet paper. I I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the I, one today. I but. did, but I'm still trying to work it out a little bit. But. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in, in sci-fi news, what I thought I would do, at least this week, and hopefully I'll, I'll keep it up, is take a look at a couple of the actors from Dollhouse and what their current projects are. So we'll go ahead and start with Eliza Dushku, who's got a recurring role on Bull as J.P. Nunnally, a world-class attorney that apparently butts heads with Michael Weatherly's character. So, you know, there is that. I'm going to talk about a movie she did a few years ago at some point called The Scribbler which is, uh, I think, based on a comic or a graphic novel. I, I did see it. It's uh, really weird. It's also uh, Katie, gosh, I can't remember her last name, from Arrow. Oh, Cassidy. Katie Cassidy is in it as well. Oh, uh, I think I remember when uh, you had sent me, like, you had told me about that at some okay. point, I remember. Yeah, very weird, but very cool. Yeah. All right. Tamo Panikit's got a recurring role in the canceled dystopian drama Incorporated, which I saw the pilot and it was okay. And obviously it didn't stay around long, but I also ran across a, a apparently a TV show called Medina, M-E-D-I-N-A-H, which is filmed and produced in Cutter of all places. And the description is when a rocket launch goes awry, a group of strangers stuck in a cave in the desert, try to survive while the corporation that launched the rocket attempts to figure out what went wrong. And I couldn't find anything else about that other than the IMDB link. So uh, no Wikipedia, no nothing. So I didn't even make Wikipedia, huh? I know. 
<laughs> and, and then uh, finally for tonight, Fran Kranz, who has the role of Pimley in The Dark Tower, which is going to be released August 4th. Right. Yeah, I did see that. Okay. Which apparently is a pretty big role. I don't really know The Dark Tower, but uh, obviously it's another Stephen King work. Uh, he's also got a film that's in post-production, A Midsummer Night's Dream, obviously the Shakespeare play. The first, which is the tale of a silent film star, Mary Pickford, and, and this is true, who co-founded United Artists Studio in 1919 and The Truth About Lies, which has an August 1st, 2017 release date. So he's a busy guy when you look at his. Yeah, he does a lot of movies, you know, too. Oh. So I looked, I was actually doing the same thing because, you know, the funny thing about like not being able to drive anywhere is that you have like loads of free time on your hands now. So I was looking at all the IMDb, you know, resumes of the people in this one. And yeah, I saw the friend Kranz was doing a lot of, you know, like uh, movies and stuff and everything that there was a, you know, like pretty, Oh, and then uh, also he was in that um, much do about nothing that Joss Whedon oh, yeah. had done, which I still haven't seen. And then, you know, it's not, it's not on Amazon anymore and anything. And it's not on, you know, or it's, you know, you can pay for it through Amazon. It's not on Netflix. So um, maybe I'll uh, see about getting it out through the, uh, through the library. Because I really should, you know, I've always wanted to see that. Just, you know, I haven't really gotten around to it. Are, are you making air quotes when you say the library? No. No, I literally mean I'll, I can get it from the library. <laughs> okay. I'll talk to you after the, after the show tonight. Okay. So, all right, well, we got a piece of listener feedback from our friend, Dan LaRock, who we haven't heard from in a while. And it has an awesome hear from last Dan. name, though. Yes, he does. All right, apologies for not writing sooner, but time is not on my side. Uh, big grats on more than 200 episodes as well. Thanks very much for podcasting, Travelers. What a fantastic show it is. And I'm pretty stoked that you guys decided to pick up Dollhouse, too. I rewatched it back in 2014, and this is a great refresher. Eliza was on the Howard Stern Show back in 2009 promoting Dollhouse, and a couple of things I learned from that interview that she grew up around Boston, has older brothers that were very protective, and that she was always a tomboy. Yeah, that's also, not it turns out, yeah. You know, I, I agree. Now, it also turns out that the first you – in Dushku is pronounced like the U in the words push or put rather than the O-U in the word for feminine hygiene product, which is the way I'd been pronouncing right. it. And I had of course, of course, Howard asked all the obligatory sex questions. I got a kick out of that interview and I looked around on YouTube and there are a handful of clips from it there. I also want to ask about the opening and closing songs that you guys use. Who's that band? They sound pretty damn good. Anyway, thanks again, guys, for all you do. I'll try to mail more frequently. Time, man. Time. <laughs> Live long and podcast Dan LaRock. Well, thanks, as always, Dan. And uh, referring to the songs, it's a band called Marker Beacon, M-A-R-K-E-R-B-E-A-C-O-N. And they're a French metal band. You can check them out at markerbeacon.org. And I found their music and we use their music through the Creative Commons licensing system, which basically are bands and musicians that put their music out there and say that you can use it as long as you're not making money from it. And then you just put a little link 
that you're using it via the Creative Commons license. So we've had that in our About section on the webpage for a while now. But but as you noted, they do the music at the beginning and the music at the end. And if you think about our Take Fives, that's them as well. It's just a different song. So we, in total, use four different songs of theirs. So, yep. yeah, I, I really like them. And, and once in a while, I'll, I'll let more of the song go at the end, thinking... You know, I like it. Somebody else might as well. Right, sure. Hey, if they ever tour the so. States, you're going to go see them play, Dave? Uh, probably not. I would have to leave my house. Right. <laughs> and, and remember, we, we don't do that, right. which, which reminds me about that Facebook message I sent you about the movie gift cards I have. Yes, right, right, right. I got to get so, on that. So we'll talk, <laughs> we'll talk about that. So we are here to talk about Dollhouse, episode five of season one called True Believer, written by Tim Minear, who... Uh, you know, we know that name. He's written mm-hmm. a couple episodes of The X-Files, four episodes of Firefly. I didn't re- realize he'd written that many. 18 of Angel, 11 episodes of American Horror Story. He He's certainly out there. Directed by Alan Croker. Yeah, out there, you direct- mean like he's, he's done a lot of work, not he's yes, out there he has. like he's a weirdo, right? Well, he might be that too. Yeah, I don't but know. he don't know that. Just you know. Well, X-Files, Firefly, Angel, yeah, American yeah. Horror. Come on. You have a point there. All right, so Alan Croker directed the series finale for, actually, the series finales for Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and Star Trek Enterprise. Wow. So So whatever, like, if you're on a Star Trek show and they hired Tim Minear as a writer, wait, are we on Tim Minear still? No, we're on the director. I'm sorry, they bring Alan Croker as the director. Uh, You're like, Damn. All right. Well, this one aired March 13th, 2009. Now, I'm a little torn. I I don't really know what I think of this episode. I mean, I like it. There are some things that I am not sure about. I don't want to say I don't like them, so I'll throw it out to you okay. first. What would well, you think well, of it? Oh, so you're just going to make me make the call. I don't know. I, I am also, so I, I said last time that this was a good episode, and it you know it is good in that you know, it's Dollhouse, and, and they're all pretty good. But I think, you know, I, I you might have noticed that I often have trouble when, you know, the writers and directors push, like, us into, you know, making us accept too much that is, like, usually not realistically acceptable. And there was just a lot of stuff in this which just kind of, like, caricature and the overt references to, or, you know, to the siege at Waco. You know, basically copying exactly what happened there was you know a, a little bit heavy-handed you know, I, I liked the, like the the biblical references and illusions that were going on here but um you know also maybe a little bit too much with you know the actual reading the bible and stuff like that as they're lighting the place on fire so i think i, I don't think this one's going to get an a from me but uh but it's not going to get a c Right. I, I gave it a B plus. And during the course of this podcast, I could see it perhaps going down to a B. I don't necessarily see it going to an A minus, but it's got a lot going for it. it. It does drive the narrative. So, so, and that's not a little thing, especially in a, in a show that's only got 13 episodes, but like you, there were just a few things that were a little bit implausible, a little bit bothersome. I mean, look, you and I have made a point, and, and I, I think it's 
with good reason that, you know, we keep politics out of the podcast. And, you know, once in a while, something, you know, a little comment gets through or whatever. But but for the most part, you know, we, we keep clear of that because people aren't listening to us to hear about politics. They're, right. they're listening to us to talk about a show. And they shouldn't be. That's right. <laughs> but that said, there are very many shows that do incorporate political ideas, commentary on contemporary politics. And, and this is 2009. I think some of these things are, are still relevant today. You know, whether or not that was Joss Whedon's intention or the writer's intention, you know, we don't really know. But one of my, one of my little nickel points is when Melly yeah. goes to the FBI. <laughs> right. Well, I got to tell you, when I would go to pick up my wife at a government building, they would tell me to move my car. I'm sitting in there waiting. They know me. I'm there every day. How the hell she got in the building without a pass, without, you know, that, right. that's but, right. Well, she but, had manicotti. She did have manicotti. And, and, and I, I, I would those, those two too. things together might have got her past security. Good point. Well, I, it's funny how many times uh, my wife said, "Can you make an extra plate of brownies and I'll give them to the guards?" <laughs> and they're they're always very appreciative. So yeah. perhaps it was but, the manicotti. But, but but yeah, but you're right. It's just like you know, just kind of show up in the FBI building. Hey, I brought you your mail and a uh, manicotti. It's like, uh, what? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we always start off with some initial thoughts. And, and one of the things, and, and look, I don't know if you saw, I, I threw up a little poll and we got a little bit of response as to whether or not this is a first viewing of Dollhouse oh, yeah. for you participate in or, or, or a rewatch. And, and there was only one person that said it was a, a first watch. And I think that was Gabby. So while we still want to be sensitive to anybody else that it's a first watch, I think we probably should, you know, move a little closer to, you know, acknowledging some things that the rest of us know. But this first thought that I have, we really don't get an answer. And I wonder whether it's somewhere in the dollhouse Bible that Joss just never was able to get to because the show got canceled. And that is the use of the military alphabet as a naming mechanism right. for the dolls. Right, right. So could the dollhouse be part of an experimental black ops project with military connections at the core? Yeah, I mean, that you're right. I mean, that is very possibly something that maybe he had in the back of his mind that a place that he could go had the show lasted. But I would think that, the, you know, at least from the evidence we have seen, especially in this episode, I tend to would say no, because, you know, part of the reason they took on this job was because the senator is a client, but also they need his protection, right? So That's correct. Was, and, and, he needs, and he needs to keep his uh, voters happy. He points that out as well. Right. So if this were some kind of, you know, official government thing, they probably really wouldn't be concerned about having, you know, the backing of the senator, right? Well, you you never know. I mean, how deep a cover does the military want to have in in a case like this? Because one of my questions, let's say for the sake of argument, that's the case. Does DeWitt even know the level of her involvement? And I would certainly think no. So, uh, you know, I, I'm going to hold that out there. I mean, any of you guys that have watched it, you know, we don't get an answer for that. But but it did occur to me because of all the names they could assign to the dolls. 
why choose you right. know, the military alphabet? Right, right. Yep, that's that's a good point. Well, it's also like a scientific thing too, I guess. But well, uh, you know, the other thing I was going to say is that we know that there's someone above Dewitt, right? Like sure. we thought for you know the first three episodes of this series that she was the one in charge and she was the head honcho. But last episode we saw her on the phone, you know, basically getting orders from someone else. So, you know, we know that she's not the top chief. So, you know, you, that's, you know, t- completely plausible that that even she wouldn't know, like, who's really, well, I mean, she knows probably the person above her, but, you know, does she, you know, she's not the one running the show. So who is? We don't know. She might not fully 100% know. Right. And, you know, we talked last week about the dollhouse having friends in high places, and obviously we get verification like of that with the Brooks. U.S. senator. Yeah, we certainly see that Dollhouse has a wide range of influence, leaves virtually nothing to chance, which is ironic given the latitude afforded to Topher. And that's just, again, something that that obviously will play a huge role down the line in, in Dollhouse. But again, we're, we're, the, seeds are, the seeds are planted. Now, Ballard calls Melly to ask her to bring him his meds at work. And, you know, we, we mentioned the whole thing about in a federal building, not sure how she got in, but it's clear she's making her move on her neighbor across the hall. I mean, what else could she do for him? I was a little surprised he actually even called her. Well, yeah, and it's, you know, a complete plot device. Um, and, you know, it's just like the whole thing is so just like silly, but you feel bad for Melanie. She brings a whole manicotti over, and then, you know, the minute he sees that that video, he's, like, completely ignored her, right? Oh, yeah. So, right. you know, I'm also wondering, does she need to bring the manicotti to him at work? Like, what exactly is he going to do with the manicotti at work? I mean, I guess he could share it with, like, his buddies and stuff, but, you know, it's like... Dude, really? Come on. <laughs> I was just, I know, but it's just like if somebody you live across the hall from him, though. You know, it's like probably, you know. But she tried that. Remember, he turned her down. Yeah, it was just she came out try, with her little apron on, holding, I think, lasagna. I think at that time. Try, but try, try again, Melly. I uh, know, I know. Now, one of the things I really did like is that that parallel between what Jonas Sparrow does with his flock and what the Dollhouse does with its. And you know, on the one hand, I think one of the commentaries that they're making in this episode has to do with blindly following a leader that does not have your best interests at heart. Sure. And in fact, at the end, DeWitt states that nothing can disturb the innocence of the dollhouse, right? which is kind of the same mantra proclaimed by Jonas Sparrow. And also that Garden of Eden kind of reference. Mm-hmm. But at, at some point, what I think really hit me in this episode is the purpose of of the dollhouse. I mean, what is it? I mean, is it simply a for-profit business? That just seems so shallow. Right. Yeah, yeah, especially since they're it seems like they have a pretty large operating budget, you know. Yeah. Like uh, how much do they I mean, obviously they charge a lot, you know, and, and everything and and it seems like uh, they would really need to charge a lot to uh, make any cash on this thing. So that might not 100% be it. You're right. Yeah. And I mean, when we talk about commentaries from this episode, I mean, they mentioned like the truth. I mean, and what is the truth as it pertains to the dollhouse? I mean, 
does it provide something for both clients and actives? And, and you know, we'll talk a little bit about that because that's really at the heart of the search that Paul Ballard's, you know, on as it pertains to Caroline. Now, the other thing I noticed in this one, how many times does Echo get smacked in this episode? Yeah, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the violence there on that guy. And, and of course, obviously, they're trying to, 100% turn him into a, a bad guy, right? Because, you know, I, I wonder if the writers got to that part of the story and realized, well, we haven't really made Jonas a bad guy. Yeah, I mean, he pulled a gun on Echo, but, like, really? What else has he done? Because he, he lets her in. He he actually has faith in her, like, that she could actually be some kind of miracle. You know, we don't see him being really bad, so, well, let's have him slap Echo a couple times and okay, now he's officially a bad guy, you know? Well, I think we always have to be a little skeptical of the jailhouse conversion, which is at the heart of his resurgence, so to speak. And we know he right, had- but we don't really see him, though. We don't see him doing anything like bad, really, besides just the, the existence of this place. Yeah, but the people there seem happy, though, right? Well, that's true. Maybe so, too happy because it's 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 not the singing, it's the smiling. It's the smiling. <laughs> now she she gets hit twice by him, and it would have been a third time, but she catches his hand. Yeah. But should we be examining Lawrence Dominic's motives as they relate to Echo's status in the dollhouse in a different light? Because I, I mean, that might be the biggest plot point of this episode is that not only does he leave her to die, he essentially. Well, he doesn't kill her, but he certainly tries to. Dude gets his boss's private jet, flies out to Arizona without anyone else knowing, gets up in his black ops gear, sneaks in during a government raid, sneaks into this compound, shoots the dude, and is just going to leave Echo there to, like... Well, he knocks wild. her out. and uh, I know, but, like... Like, like if he won her dead, like, why not finish the job? Well, I guess what surprises yeah. me is that he apparently thought he could do all of that and fly under DeWitt's radar, which is, of course, yeah. not the case. Right. No, no. She's all over that. So does he have her back or should she take him out to protect not only herself, but the dollhouse? I mean, is he going off the deep end? And is she really aware of how deep his distaste for Echo really runs? I mean, well, I think she does now. And who does he really work for? You have to start questioning that. I mean, is he working at somebody else's bidding? Is he keeping an eye on DeWitt for someone else? I mean, yeah, uh, that's possible. But, you know, I think it also kind of goes back to what you've said is that, you know, I mean, his his reasoning is not. It's not irrational, right? No, it's not. He's like, she's showing the exact same signs that Alpha did. So you know, he was there when Alpha killed a bunch of people, cut up Dr. Saunders, and took off. So, you know, like, his concern is justified. Now, does that mean we, of course we don't like it. We think the guy's a jerk. He tried to kill Echo. You know, anyone who tries to mess with Echo, obviously, is on our bad guy list, but you know, as you point out a number of times, though, like Dominic's rationale for doing what he does actually kind of makes sense. Yeah, and, and I was looking for the that that quote about the fact that 
she, DeWitt says that she's adaptive. And he's like, well, that's not good. She should be predictable. Right. And he's not wrong, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, adaptable is is bad. You know, that means they're thinking. It means that there there's something else going on besides what we programmed to happen. Which then begs the question, why doesn't DeWitt see that? Or does she see it and for whatever reason decides to overlook it? Yeah. Well, I mean, we have to assume she does see it. She's, you know, like at least she's on top of everything. You know, Dominic tries to sneak off in their plane and she's, you know, she's all over him. So she completely knows what's going on there. So. And we have to assume that she sees this stuff, and but is letting it slide for some reason or another. Right. All right. Now, one of the other big things that comes out of this episode that, that's been kind of building up for a while now is the question of whether or not Echo is overriding her wipes and becoming self-aware. And certainly, you know, we'll talk about that that closing scene, which I, I think certainly has to make us think, yeah, it sure seems that way, but to mm-hmm. what extent you know what level of awareness she's able to have of course Topher would say nah it's just an anomaly all right now yeah well i mean she's <clears throat> well i mean i guess we'll talk about that but I mean, she certainly is able to keep whatever is happening inside she she keeps hidden right so that you know like people unlike victor whose uh you know aberration is obvious um, you know, echoes is, is, uh, she keeps nascent. Yeah. Yeah. No question. And, and by, uh, by that, you mean his two messence? His two messence. Yeah. Okay. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the opening scene, uh, you know, in, in retrospect, I, I still really didn't get a good feel for how that FBI agent that was, or I'm sorry, the, uh, uh, ATF guy, a- ATF guy wrote the note on the back of that shopping list. Uh, list but he he was pretty clever but but still you know they come in there and and, and you know y- you kind of feel for that that townie it, it's like god this is so annoying you yeah know? well it, and, and weird and yeah yeah so so you, you kind of understand like, that but still like that yeah you know, yeah you have to be tolerant All it's right, like so, the you you've seen uh what, what's the harris ford movie uh in lancaster uh, witness right oh yeah i did so you know, like there's that scene in Witness where like the the people like are harassing the Quakers, uh, or the, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not the Quakers, the Amish, um, you know, and like saying, you know, I, I fought in Vietnam, why aren't you? And like start pushing them and everything, you know. So I mean, that kind of intolerance is yeah not unheard of at no. least in movies. Sure, and, and, and certainly in a small town, the, the way this is purported to be, out in the middle of uh, where are they in Arizona? Yeah, uh, Pleasant, Arizona. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, well, the A story, again, is the engagement. And in this case, they use Echo to infiltrate this religious cult with the imprint of a blind girl being led by God. Yeah, I mean, certainly, as you mentioned, there were a lot of religious overtones here, and certainly we, we could talk about, I think we already did to a certain extent, the idea of blindly following someone who doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart, or maybe they do, but it's this blind following, which obviously is ironic given that she is blind. But but of course, she's going in and has these implants, I forget, some kind of cortex, something or other, Topher explains, but uh, they can see through her eyes, but she can't. Which was pretty right. cool. So, like this, yeah, the signal is getting 
sent out to the you know to the government rather than you know to her brain. But to, here, here's what like begs the question because then, like her eyes would still be working, right? Like they'd still be, like they're just not the 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 signals is just not going back to her brain; it's going somewhere else. So you know when they test her uh, in in the dark room, you'd think her eyes would still look like they're operating and everything just fine because they are. Dude, you're talking science now. <laughs> That's just what I was thinking. I don't know. Yeah, the ophthalmologists out there listening. <laughs> yeah, I don't know either. But but so this is the point where we realize, okay, this U.S. senator not only knows DeWitt, he's a client, and who knows what he comes to the dollhouse for, but the ATF is convinced that something untoward is going on behind the cult's compound walls, and he talks about an election year coming up doesn't want to use an agent he needs a true believer which i again we talk about the show titles i i really think this is one of the best titles of the season mm-hmm. so far you know, yeah i mean certainly- and that's why the doll oh i'm sorry no go ahead i just i mean that's why you know a, a a doll would be perfect because you know she's sincere she's not acting like a undercover agent would be like you know like you said they see through that pretty easily you need someone who has like really has faith but well well i'll get to my my problems with that whole issue later when we get to it so continue on with the same okay well you know i mean a lot of the conflict that that's been also building in the series is is as we said between dominic and dewitt and and right away he doesn't like the job he's worried about echo He's not worried about Boyd. Boyd can handle the ATF. He's worried that DeWitt likes Echo too much and it's clouding her judgment. So again, you know, at some point, because I don't remember how long they let this play out between the two of them before there's some sort of resolution. I mean, we all know exactly what happens, but I just don't remember the incidents leading up to it, you know? Uh, it's just leading up to what? What, what happens to Dominic? Of- Oh, 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 so you're jumping forward again. Well, I understand that, but I'm just saying, you know, again, I think we need to acknowledge the fact that most of the listeners, this is a rewatch. So, so to point out these little things that are going to lead up to something so that we're not going to tell you what it's leading up to. Well, yeah, there's definitely this, the, the, you know, Dominic is setting himself up in direct uh, conflict with Echo. Right. Right. And it's getting to a point where, these two can't continue to exist together, right? It's just, you know, he he's, I mean, like, he really turned the corner on this one. Right. But but I also like the scene where they're, they're preparing to do the surgery. Dr. Saunders is opposed to it. DeWitt's got this business-like attitude, and Topher's, of course, his usual irreverent self. But it, it kind of brings to the forefront the different motives that each has for their involvement with the dollhouse. I mean, is it simply about money? I mean, for, for all his irreverent behavior, I don't think it's about the money for Topher. I think it's about the work. And Dr. Saunders, again, we know the truth about Dr. Saunders. So, you know, that's a question that, that, you know, we, we can't really answer, but what is it for DeWitt? Right. I mean, yeah. Well, like you said, I mean, from her, 
you know, she seems to have a very pragmatic attitude towards it, where it seems to be, you know, business, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. like she's in it, like she's here to make money and for the company to succeed. And so for her, that's what seems to be the prime motivation. Okay. All right. Now, one of the other uh, problems I have with the episode, uh, you know, they're sending Echo in as a blind girl who, who's led by God to the compound that, that she saw Jonas Sparrow's face in a vision. And that's how she can recognize him, you know, by, by touching his face. But why use the name Esther? You know, he, he tells that story at the end about Esther essentially having a vision and all. I mean, wouldn't that you know, draw some red flags for, for somebody that is so well-versed in the Bible. Yeah. Or is it just so obvious that he would just overlook it because nah, they're not going to name the girl Esther if she's really coming in to spy on me. Right. Or that is exactly what they would name her. (laughs) One of those two things, but either way, if you are paranoid about people spying on you, you definitely should not accept people who show up on your doorstep, who are blind and show up at your doorstep, claiming that they saw you in a vision and so they traveled the country and found their way to you. I mean, it's just too improbable. It just, you know, like, but, but you can, what you also see there, you know, it's called true believer. I mean, you know, Jonas, to a degree, seems like he wants to be a true believer. I mean, he, he says a number of times he's a sinful man, but he gets hooked in by Esther because he really wants to believe that miracles happen, right? Well, see, I think you're buying into him in that regard more than I do. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Why else I, would he? Why else would he bring her in? Well, then it goes back to the question: What's the motivation for somebody that does what he? is doing in other words to found and then minister to uh, you know he i'm sure he doesn't refer to them as a cult but that's certainly what it is i mean what's his motivation it's not to make money right i mean no. is it just strictly about the power or then maybe you're right in that it is something of a higher calling yeah but then they got all those guns you know that's so, I mean, it's just, just a lot. Of, and see, this is where I guess the problems with this episode roll in because, you know, it's just the whole nature of this cult. You know, like you'd expect for her to get there and people are scared or unhappy, but the people there are happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's uh, the, the note was a forgery that the ATF guy did. So there's no one there who wrote a note saying, save me. There's no one there who wants to be saved. From it that like so it's almost like what's the problem here right because they they all feel that he saved them from something that happened at zion ranch in texas which we don't really know what it was but you know they see him as a savior of sorts right yeah exactly so so you know like we that's why i said they they have to have just hit esther because otherwise he's not really we, we don't we're trying to figure out what's so bad about this guy. Sure. You know? Right. Because otherwise like he, he loves guns, but how does that make him different from the rest of the state of Texas and Arizona? You know? Well, that's, uh, or not the, but I'm just saying like, there's a lot of people who like guns, you know? So it's like, just cause he's, I mean, yeah, he's got a bunch of guns and that's dangerous and everything, but it's like, you know, it doesn't necessarily make him a bad person. 
I think I told you about the time I was called for jury duty here and it was turned out to be a murder trial and there were a couple hundred people in there and the the judge one of the first questions he asked if you have ever owned or own now a gun stand i was like the only one sitting yeah sitting in carroll county i know (laughs) (laughs) so while they're waiting on the warrant to storm the place boyd wants to extract echo before they begin the op and i'm thinking why would you think that the agent in charge is going to allow that because even he says as much of a dick as he is yeah, uh, we'll go in there and say, hey, can we get her out before we storm the place? I, I mean, Boyd's yeah. not an idiot. So so why would he you know, think that? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know why why he'd even ask, because like if you're thinking like, you know, kind of like, a, you know, a secret extraction. Well, yeah, it is an extraction. <sighs> but, you know, like to do it. Um, you know, in in the dark, you know, in secret, um, then that's one thing. But yeah, he's like, if by asking for permission, it seems like he, yeah, like he does just kind of want to walk up and, you know, try and get her out of there, which is like crazy. Well, he mentions human trafficking, prostitution, I think. So, you know, we get the idea that either this guy, Jonas Sparrow, does have a dark past even after prison or this agent simply making all this up to justify what it is he's trying to do. And the more I talk to you, I'm starting to believe that that's more of what it is rather than Jonas being a bad guy. Although like you said, they do have the scenes where he physically hits right Esther at the end. And well, well, yeah, at the end he does, he's, he's a bad guy. No question about it. At the end he's, he's a bad guy. Um, he orders the, oh, and crazy too, because yeah. he orders the, you know, the, the place lit on fire. He's going to make people stay there at gunpoint, uh, to be burned alive. The, you know, the character goes completely off the rails at the end of it, but they just don't really build that up, uh, you know, throughout the episode. Right. But he starts talking about, you know, human trafficking, prostitution. I'm thinking like, well, it's kind of like the dollhouse, you know, so that, yeah. that, that the parallels here are unmistakable. So then Boyd calls Dominic to get authorization for a forced extraction. Dominic's like, hmm, this is exactly what I need. Permission denied. Let her stay in there to die. So, you know, we've seen the dolls being placed in these extreme situations, being totally unprepared for what's about to happen, which in this case, that, that she may be killed, which is clearly what Dominic wants. You know, we talked a little bit about the story of Esther and, and, you know, the ATF agents are moving into position. One of them trips a wire. I'm not sure why they wouldn't have thought, you know, they already (laughs) saw the arsenal. Right. So did you not think they'd have a security system? Yeah, exactly. Uh, It just boggles the mind. Yeah. But regardless, uh, I guess the head slap, you know, dislodges the tech that's in her head. It's a miracle. I can see the beauty there is she truly believes it is a miracle. And we go back to the title of the episode, true believer. So this is not Caroline realizing, you know, that, that, you know, she's in the middle of all this, although she does seem to have a little different skill set. On the other hand, you could argue that, you know, what we see in the car ride with Boyd to the compound is she's a pretty tough cookie. 
Right. You know? Right. And that was a nice scene with that, on that car ride because we see, like, the kind of the relationship between, like, uh, we've now seen this pretty much with every engagement. Uh, no matter who she is, she has this very um, close, which obviously that's the, the, you know, the dollhouse makes it happen that the handler and the active are, have a very close relationship. But you see, no matter what, you know, what her role is, what is always the same is that close relationship that she has with Boyd. Yeah. Yeah. And and it just keeps getting deeper, which again is one of the fascinating aspects of the show because we don't really see it on her end. You know, it's like a one-sided relationship through no fault of her own. Right. So, well, Seth decides, well, he doesn't decide. Uh, Jonas tells him to douse the building with gasoline and starts telling the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving a fire with God's intervention. Does he truly believe that's what's going to happen here? I, I, I don't know, but does he think because the building catches fire that the ATF is just going to turn around and go home? So Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You know. But but Esther, but I think it, it goes in 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 line with you know trying to mimic you know what happened at Waco, and that's the 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 common belief, right? Is that the Branch Davidians uh, lit that you know started the fire themselves in Waco, and I mean, obviously the other side believes that the the government started the fire, but um, you know the 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 point is that you know, almost eighty people died in the fire in the as the ATF raided. Uh, the compound at Waco. So, you know, here is this episode almost slavishly, you know, following those same events. Right. And, and you don't know what, was that David Koresh? Yeah. Uh, what his message to his flock was at that point, whether he was telling them, you know, basically the same story. We don't know that. But here, Esther's sight has given her a vision of what needs to be done. Dying in a fire is not in that vision. God has a message. Move your asses. Yes. Which, which may be my favorite line in the show. Right, right. Right. Well, yeah, and if God, you know, maybe God might actually talk like that. That might actually be. But here's one other thing I want now that you've uh, entered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is, uh, you know, BC Boys song as well. Um, of but, course. It uh, is. You know, so <laughs> Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All right. Anyway, so they were, you know, Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, throws them in the fire because they won't bow down before an idol. And similarly, in the story of Esther, um, Esther was uh, the wife of Xerxes, and um, one of his advisors, Haman, was going to slaughter all the Jews for the, like the same thing because they refused to. Well, this one uh, guy would not. I think Mordecai would not bend down and pay homage to Haman. So it's this kind of thing, like, if you don't worship me or bow down before me, then you're going to die. And so, you know, there's probably some of that playing in here with, uh, you know, um, Genesis' decision to torch the place. Yeah, yeah, I I certainly believe that's true, which then goes back to, uh, you know, is he a true believer or not? Maybe that's part of the beauty of this episode is that we really don't know about him. Well, I think it's like he kind of becomes a like a you know because at first, like you said he um talks so much about being a sinful person 
you know, but I think at the end that Esther has kind of turned him into a true believer. And, uh, but he takes this belief to mean, you know, I have to, you know, light this place on fire to, you know, to prove like, like all these miracles are happening in one day. Let's go for one more, you know, where everyone survives this fire. Yeah. Well, another thing that I think is certainly a positive in this episode is again, we get the whole bait and switch. We assume it's Boyd that's going in there in, in the gear to rescue echo, but it turns out that it's Dominic knocks her out, leaves her to die. But of course, Boyd comes to the rescue and in the final scene carries her out and and whether or not he's going to expose the lead agent, it doesn't appear that way. Although when Ballard drives up there at the end, the lead ATF agent is not very cooperative. In fact, won't even shake his hand. Did you notice that? No, I did not notice that. Yeah, Ballard puts his hand out. So, I mean, let, let's, uh, go ahead, let's go ahead and segue into the B story, which is, you know, Ballard continuing his search to identify the girl in the photograph, Caroline. And yes. he wants one of his colleagues to run Caroline's photo against one of her databases because- Yeah, Loomis- She's got more clearance. What do we know her from? She looks so- uh, Star Trek Into Darkness. She oh, was, okay. She was on the the crew of the uh, of the Enterprise. Right now, I'm not sure whether it comes across that she's putting her career at risk by doing what he's asking her to do. At first, I thought that, and then on a rewatch, I'm like, nah. She's just saying she's really busy and doesn't have time you know right. it's so i mean it is a case he's working on so i think she'd be able to explain it to her superiors if it was brought up yeah well plus it's you know it's just like you know it's like it's, it's not something untoward it's just no one wants to really help him because like no one takes his case seriously right right exactly now we we mentioned Melly bringing his meds, played by Miracle Laurie. We haven't really mentioned her, the actress's name, uh, I think, to this point, and and we'll see her a little more as season one uh, moves on. But she comes, as we said, with the meds and the leftover manicotti. But a couple of things come out of of you know these two scenes. Number one is uh, Loomis comes up empty on her photo search, and then Melly has another manila envelope that's addressed to Ballard that she claims some guy in the hallway gave her. Now, Loomis deduces that it's little little Stevie or whatever. Um, Well, it's funny that when she's describing him, we're like listening intently because we're thinking, oh, you know, because we, by this point, we definitely suspect that Alpha is the one who's sending this stuff to Ballard, and so like, oh, here we're gonna get our first description what Alpha looks like, but uh, no, he's she's describing the male boy, right? And if we believe that Alpha is that that guy that we saw earlier, uh, he's certainly anything but little, right? So, so we know that. But inside this one is a disc with that yearbook video that we've we've already seen. Melly appears a tiny bit jealous, even though Ballard has made no mention of the girl in the photograph. And that goes back to a, a, another thing. This is an FBI case. I think we said at the time when she saw the photograph on the outside of that folder when they're standing in the hallway of the apartment. And now you're letting her watch evidence in a case. Yeah. She, I mean, come on. Right. Right. Hey, Melly, why don't you just hang in the back of the room while we check out this evidence? Yeah, no biggie. And it would be one thing if 
we knew he was after her, you know, in a sexual or romantic uh, aspect that, you know, he would be doing that, you know, as, as a little selling point, but that's not the case. At least it doesn't seem so. Well, he's so obsessed with Caroline that, you know, like he, I mean, look, Melly is beautiful. She is super nice and sweet and she makes food for him all the time. And he just can't give her the time of day, you know? It's, and instead, he's chasing this ghost of Caroline who he doesn't even know. While he's at his office, he sees that news feed from the ATF op and sees Caroline being led out by Jonas. So obviously, I'm not sure why it takes him so long to get there. Well, I guess he's got to go to Arizona. Uh, yeah. Unlike Mr. Dominic, he can't just requisition the company jet. Yeah, right. But- Ballard shows that photo of Caroline and the ATF agent denies ever seeing her. And I don't think that's anything sinister. I just think it's like this guy, he realizes he screwed this op up. No, but you know what I think it is? What? He, he never saw her. Oh, okay. He never saw her. He only, they only saw through her eyes. Okay. Good point. He never actually saw Esther. Oh, good point. So when he sees the picture, he's like, that could be anyone. He literally means that. Because I, I thought the same thing at first. I thought either, A, he was covering something up or just being a jerk. But I'm like, I realized, like, well, wait a second. He, he would have never have seen Esther. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. Because I'm assuming, well, he saw the same news feed. I'm thinking, like, well, why just now? Well, he wouldn't see that news feed. He is that news feed. Right. But even if he did, he wouldn't know who the people were. You know, they just... There's just a bunch of people right now. The only reason it's a big deal to Ballard is because he recognizes uh, Echo, Caroline, Esther um, as she's you know leaving the building. Right. Now, we've had a few sea stories in the first few episodes, and we have one here, but it's not about Alpha. It's about the negative effects of repeated imprints, which I think is a viable thing that, that – needs to be addressed and certainly dr saunders feels that way so what happens is sierra and victor are showering he gets an erection while he's looking at her and topher who's monitoring the shower notices and goes to see saunders because (laughs) something came up yep and that victor had what you did there yeah victor had a man reaction man that's right which i love it because she finds that totally absurd yeah, But she thinks it's the eight romantic engagements that he's had. And that's when she brings up the idea of multiple imprints being dangerous. And of course, surprise, Topher, no, she's wiped clean after each one. That's that's not it. <laughs> and he's like, well, did you put that in your reports? And she says, yes. He goes, well, of course, nobody reads those. <laughs> so what she suggests, go back and look at old shower tapes to look for man reactions, <laughs> which, <laughs> which I, I think they did this really wonderfully because on yeah. the one hand, they, it could have been completely over the top silly, but it wasn't in part because of Saunders' clinical uh, approach to it. She's got the time codes written down. In the first one, she says, go back to this. He goes, really? She goes, yeah. And she puts two and two together that it all occurs once Sierra was introduced into his world. And at the end, he likes her, yeah. which seemingly 
isn't a big deal, but it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Right, because he shouldn't like, he's in a doll state. And that's why they let him shower with each other, because it doesn't matter. They don't have those things happening. Right. Now, my wife was watching this one with me today, and she's seen the entire series before. It's, you know, it's been a while. And she asked, well, why do they have them shower together? I don't know. That's a good yeah. question. I, I don't, I mean, I know there's no reason that they can't, but why do they have them? To save water? I don't know. Yeah. A, a interesting question. All right. So, so they determined that Victor's got to be scrubbed and then monitored closely. DeWitt tells Topher and Saunders that Victor's got to be scrubbed and monitored closely. But then Dominic lies to DeWitt about why he went to the compound and once again makes his case for the attic for Echo. And I love here because, like us, DeWitt's had about enough of Dominic. Not amused, tells him to take the stairs instead of the elevator that she just got in. Right. So, you know, we talked about that, that conflict that's brewing. He's perhaps pushed a little too far, a little too fast. So that's going to be interesting watching that go forward. It's just like if you are any underling and you keep suggesting something to your boss, your boss keeps saying no. At some point, you might want to just stop suggesting it, you know? Yeah, just shut up. Yeah. And then we go back to Echo's character, Esther, for a minute, who says she wants to become a new person more than anything. And I'm thinking like, okay, gosh, another nod to the reason that Caroline signs herself over to the dollhouse in the first place. And again, if you're a first-time watcher, you don't know what that reason is. Those of us that have seen the series, we know what it is. And, and essentially, that's it, it, that she needs to become a new person, mm-hmm. which, you know, you may argue down the road when you find out that, well, really, it wasn't that bad, but it kind of was. But anyway, <laughs> all right. So we get to the closing scene, and I'm just going to call this Echo's Awareness because Topher and Saunders are watching Echo. as She comes out of her mind wipe, and Saunders right. asks about her vision She's looking down in the common area, asks her, you know, whether she sees okay. And she sees Dominic and tells her, I see perfectly. And it's like that spark of recognition that she knows what he did. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, it it certainly seems like, you know, obviously we can't be 100% sure. But yeah, it it certainly uh, seems to be that she looks at him and says, oh, I remember what that guy did. Yeah, and, and what's going to happen in the next episode related to that? I mean, because again, will she be imprinted with something? Because it's almost as if before, you know, it's like that story Harrison Bergeron, you know that story, right? Yes. It, it's almost as if in that story, they, they send the, you know, the, the, the audio signals to prevent somebody from putting thoughts together. And the smarter you are, the the quicker they come. And it's almost before she has a chance to really act on any of these things that she's maybe becoming aware of, she's given a new imprint. Right. And any progress she makes is lost. Right. So Right. But it, it definitely seems like, and you know, we've said a number of times before that it seems like that, you know, that there's some stuff is carrying over. Um, so yeah all right anything uh you want to bring up that we haven't talked about yet a couple things first of all the guy who was playing um 
the uh, ATF agent? Uh, no, uh, Lilia, Lilia. Oh, Ilya. Ilya. He looked no, familiar. Um, he's Angus Sutherland, who's Kiefer Sutherland's younger half brother. Oh, okay. So, yeah, this is what happens when you get a lot of time on your hands. Yeah. Nice haircut, uh, by the way. Yeah, yeah, he did have nice. He had nice, some nice flow going there. Oh, just uh, you know, the whole story of Esther is tied in with the um, you know, the, the the Jewish festival of Purim which celebrates the deliverance because Esther, um, you know, once she found out about this plot that Haman was hatching to kill the Jews, um, she arranged for a, a dinner with her husband, which she, she usually couldn't do. Like she went and, and met, instead of being called to Xerxes, she went to him, which could have cost her her life. So th- there's this thing there of, of Esther being like this very, very brave woman. And uh, and so we eat hamantash. Well, not we, you know, the Jewish people eat, because my wife's Jewish. So the hamantash in, at, uh, at uh, Purim, which is like this little, because I guess Haman, the bad guy, wore this tri-corner hat. So it's like these little triangle cookies that are really good. So that has nothing to do with the episode, really. Just kind of like a fun fact. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> uh, Seth is the third son of Adam and Eve. Which again, I don't have any idea what that has to do with the episode, but I just was trying to look up all these biblical names that we saw throughout there and everything. Right. Um, and uh, I think that might be it. All right, that I got. Okay, well, you know, I'm I'm gonna stick with the B plus. Uh, what are you going with? I'm going with a straight B. I think. Okay. All right. Sounds sounds reasonable. All right. Well, I guess that's gonna do it for this edition of sci-fi tv rewatch want to thank you for joining us tonight love to hear from you about what you think about dollhouse anything else that's going on in genre television as we keep saying there is a ton of it out there encourage you to join the facebook group and share your thoughts with the sci-fi tv rewatch community if you're already a member spread the word emails to sci-fi tv rewatch at gmail.com voicemails via the speak pipe tab which you can access through the website And we'll be back next week to talk about Dollhouse Episode 6 of Season 1 titled Man on the Street. But until then... So, Dave, you you ever heard of uh, Reptile World? Reptile Land? No. It's right off of Route 15 up in Pennsylvania. Like, I don't know where it's like uh, south of Williamsport. But uh, anyway, so we, we going up to Buffalo, we drive past this place. But, you know, I discovered like... The one thing you should never say there, because this really cheeses off the people of Reptile Land, if you walk in and say, if if a serpent should enter, we must crush it beneath our heel. So don't say that in Reptile Land.